You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Open your Bible to Luke chapter 1. This is the final message in our Simply Pray series. And today's title is Simply Praise. We've given you this little acronym to help you have kind of a template for your prayers. And we've been learning to pray scripture. This prayer uh, template is just an acronym. It's an acrostic of the word pray. And we've said that the P stands for praise. R is repent. A is ask. And Y is yield. Last week we talked about moving from asking to yielding. And we are going to end where we began with praise. Do you know what the most often repeated command is in the Bible? Anybody know? Anybody know? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord is not just an exclamation. It is a command. And our praise is translated into our prayers. And so it is appropriate that before we ask God to do the impossible, that we acknowledge that He is a God who can do the impossible. In our praising Him, we are magnifying Him for who He is and for what He has done. And so we're about to read a very famous section of Scripture. There have been many, many things theologians that have written about this particular section, and uh, it, so much so that it has a special name. It is known as the Magnificat. The Magnificat is a word that is a Latin word, the Latin translation of this section of Scripture, the first word of this section is Magnificant. And so uh, many uh, things have been said about it. As a matter of fact, N.T. Wright said this, The Magnificat is one of the most famous songs in Christianity. It's been whispered in monasteries. It's been chanted in cathedrals. It's been recited by small remote churches by evening candlelight and set to music with trumpets and kettle drums by Johann Sebastian Bach. But when Mary sang the Magnificat, she was singing the gospel before the gospel. A fierce, bright shout of triumph 30 weeks before Jesus' birth in Bethlehem 30 years before his death at Calvary, the Magnificat is all about God, and it's all about revolution, and it's all because of Jesus who's only just been conceived. And so let's begin reading here in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoken to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And so we know that Mary had a song of praise. And it all began with this phrase, 
my soul magnifies the Lord. Do you have a soul this morning? Do you have a soul? Yeah. So what is this thing, the soul? Mary had a soul and she's saying that her magnification of the Lord was coming from her soul. Simply put, your soul is just the immaterial part of you. The next phrase that she uses there is she mentions her spirit. Same thing. The word soul and spirit is used interchangeably in different parts of the scripture. And I think we try to make too much of the difference between the soul and the spirit. But she's just saying this is coming from the deepest part of who I am, the soul. And and a lot of people would kind of deny that there's this immaterial part of you. Well, you want there to be an immaterial part of you because it's the only part of you that can actually connect with an immaterial God. God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This immaterial part of us is that which connects with God. Here's the bad news. Your soul is broken. It's bent. As a matter of fact, the scripture indicates it's dead. Until God comes and activates life in your dead soul, you have no capacity to praise God, to know God, to magnify God, and for God to do anything for you. Your soul has to be reconnected to God. You say, that sounds kind of spooky and mystical. Listen, um, many of you, if you're in high school and college, you took a class in psychology. How many of you have ever taken a class in psychology? Do you know what the Greek word for the word soul is in this text? Psyche. You know what psychology is? It's the study of the soul. And so even godless people would acknowledge there's something going on inside of you. It's it's the part of you that a surgeon can't put on a table and cut open and pull out. There is something that God has created in you that he wants to connect with him. And your soul is meant to magnify the Lord. As a matter of fact, my soul was made to magnify. God specifically made your soul for the single purpose of magnifying the Lord. Now... There's a lot of different ways to magnify. I, how many of you have glasses on right now? Okay, because you got old like me and you can't. I remember the day that I was preaching and I, re, I looked down to read my Bible without glasses and I'm like, where did it go? Can somebody read verse four for me? Because I can't see it anymore. So fortunately, now in, in the modern day, we have magnification that helps us to see better. Do you understand that's what your soul is supposed to do? It's supposed to magnify the Lord so people can see him better. Now, John Piper has famously said that there's two kinds of magnification. First of all, there is microscope magnification. Um, There's when you get a germ or a disease or something and you put it on a slide and you take a, a microscope and you look down and what you see in the microscope you see something that is very small, but it appears bigger than it actually is. Now, when Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, she was not saying, I am going to make God look bigger than he really is. Do you understand that you cannot make God look bigger than he really is? So our souls are not microscopes. John Piper says, our souls are telescopes. You see a telescope, you point it at something that is enormous. It's just really far away. And the telescope magnifies it so that it appears closer to the size that it really is. My soul is a telescope. 
And there is a lost world out there that desperately needs to see how enormous and magnificent our God really is. And so my words, my actions, my attitude, my marriage, everything about me flowing from my soul should be that uh, something that others can look into and see through to see this magnificent God. And Mary made a choice. My soul magnifies the Lord. Now, you need to know something about your soul. Not only was your soul made to magnify, but if my soul does not magnify the Lord, it will find something less significant, less magnificent to magnify. Because God created your soul to mag it's going to magnify. Even if you say, I don't even believe in God. I don't believe in this stuff. Well, you believe in something. You're going to magnify something. Your soul is attracted to magnificence. And there's something in your soul that's... Our, our souls don't magnify small things. It magnifies big things. And so if you have a misdirected magnification, you will choose as your object of magnificence your object of magnification, something less magnificent. How many of you have already seen the new Star Wars movie? Raise your hands. Okay, those of you that have are very proud of the fact. How many of you actually got dressed up and like Princess Leia and you, you, yeah, okay. So you, no, you got, so anyway, so I went to see this movie. And so I'm, I'm just kind of marginal Star Wars. I was 10 when the first one came out. And so it's kind of part of my past. And it's amazing how Luke and Leah have aged but Chewie never does. Have you noticed that? Okay. It's like, so I'm just like, so I'm, I'm like identifying with Chewie. I don't age when I go to these movies. So I, I do feel like I'm like 10 when I go back there. But it, I mean, there's this phenomena that happens. It, you're in a movie theater. It, it's a film. Okay. The actors aren't there. Okay. But when something magnificent happens, the crowd that I was in, everybody broke into applause. I'm like, they they can't hear you. They're, it's not real. <gasps> it's not real. Okay. It's science fiction. Okay. But you, do you know why that happens? And for you, it may not be Star Wars. It may be a sports team or it may be music or it may be an artist or it may be an athletic accomplishment. Our, our souls are so bent to magnify the magnificent, that we magnify things like love and relationships and money and power and sports and fashion and beauty and education and career and success, health, fitness, food, and Star Wars. Because if our souls find something less significant than God, and we have a misdirected magnification then we will miss out on the most magnificent thing or one that our souls could magnify. And so we're dealing with less magnificent things when God wants our souls to be magnifying Him. Whatever my soul magnifies reveals the true Lord of my soul. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. But if you choose not to magnify the Lord, then it will reveal what you think is most magnificent.
And so whatever ends up becoming your Lord actually ends up controlling you. You spend your money on it. You spend your time on it. You spend uh, your, your energy on it. You spend time thinking about it. So what is it that your soul has chosen to magnify? It's whatever you think is most significant. And my soul actually becomes like what it magnifies. The more time you spend gazing into it, the more money you invest in it, the more you stare at it, the more it begins to change you. And this is actually the way the Lord changes us. If you will get your focus on God as the most magnificent one, you will find that your words become like His words. Your thoughts become like His thoughts. Your actions become like His actions. Because God wants to do some soul work deep down on the inside of you. And that's what He had done for Mary. She says, my spirit, in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, I want you to think about this. It says that she rejoices. Today, we're talking about joy. It's the third word of Advent. I hope you have joy in her heart. But I want you to think about Mary here for a moment, okay? I don't know what your concept of Mary is. Can we just kind of um, erase some of the glamour that we have around Mary? Mary was probably about a 14-year-old girl who wakes up one morning and finds out she's pregnant and she's not married. Now, any dads in the room of 14-year-old girls? I have a 14-year-old girl, okay? If my daughter woke up this morning and came and found me and said, hey, dad, just want to let you know, I'm pregnant. You're what? Who is he? And where's my shotgun, Okay. No, 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 dad, you don't understand. You're just like, I haven't, I, I don't have, we didn't, I never, I'm, I'm a virgin, but I'm pregnant. Okay, now you're pregnant and you're a liar because that doesn't happen, okay? That is, that is just, but that was her reality. Can you imagine her trying to explain that story to all of her Instagram followers? and all of her, her friends, her former friends now. And can you imagine the awkward conversation of going to her fiance and saying, I'm pregnant. But wait, we didn't, who, I didn't, we've never, who, you've. So do you understand that her first response was probably not rejoicing at this? The information that she just got about her being pregnant had the potential to actually wreck her life. She probably lost her reputation. She probably lost her friends. She almost lost her fiance. And so it took a yielding of her soul to understand what God was doing to actually embrace the plan of God and get her soul and spirit to a place where she chose as an intentional, voluntary act. I'm going to rejoice in what God is doing even though I do not understand His plan. She had to bend her soul to God's plan. We read about that if you just kind of look up the page a little bit. Look at verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be 
to me according to your word. That was an intentional choice deep down on the inside of her to believe that what God was doing was a good thing. And because of it, she chose to magnify the Lord. And the choice Mary had is the choice that everybody here today has. No matter what's going on, whether you understand it or don't understand it, can you get your soul to a place where you choose? My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The reason we don't do that is because we do not understand who God is and we do not understand what God is doing. Praise is a response to who God is, an accurate view of God and an accurate view of what God is doing in the world. And so we need to discuss these two things. That's what Mary got to in her prayer. In this song lyric, she left for us a description of who God is and what God is doing. So let's consider those two things. First of all, magnify the Lord for who he is. And so let's discover in her praise who he is. She tells us in verse 48, it says... Actually, in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So the first thing that we need to know is that God is a Savior. He is our Savior. His nature is to save. His nature is to rescue. His nature is to find people who are helpless and come to where they are and get them to a safe place. He is a Savior. And I want you just to let your mind think for a moment here. Do you see the words on the page? Put your eyes on the page. Mary says that she's rejoicing in God as her Savior. Mary needed a Savior. It's amazing to me. It puzzles me a little bit of how much people and people in the church want to magnify Mary. I, I don't understand that. There is nothing in the Bible that magnifies Mary. Even in this prayer, what Mary has left for us is a magnification of God. And yet somehow we want to magnify Mary. Um, I, I found this tweet a uh, a couple of weeks ago by Pope Francis, and this is what he says in his tweet. I didn't know the Pope tweeted. Apparently the Pope's got a Twitter account. So he says, may the Virgin Mary always be our refuge, our consolation, and the way that leads to Christ. I'm sure Pope Francis is sincere. I'm sure he's a wonderful man. I'm sure that, that he... I do not understand why the Catholic Church wants to magnify Mary. Now listen, if you've had a Catholic background, I, my desire is not to be hostile toward the Catholic Church, but I do want to be truthful. I'm not down on the Catholic Church. I'm down on bad theology, and, and, and I'm, I'm really up on magnifying the Lord. But I don't understand why we magnify Mary. Don't magnify Mary magnify the Lord of Mary, the Savior of Mary. 
contrary to Catholic teaching, Mary was not immaculately conceived. Mary didn't live a sinless life. Mary was not miraculously assumed into heaven. Mary is not the co-redemptrix of Christ. Mary should not be venerated. Mary isn't listening to your prayers. Don't pray to Mary. Pray like Mary. Mary's too busy in heaven praising Jesus. And so don't pray to Mary. Pray to the Lord of Mary. Mary isn't the dispenser of blessing. As a matter of fact, it says in verse 48, For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Why does our generation call her the blesser? She's not the blesser, she's the blessee. And you can be blessed, but not through Mary. Listen, Mary is the way that God got Jesus to us. Mary is not the way that we get to God. That is only Jesus, right? So don't magnify Mary. And so I, I, I think Mary would be absolutely appalled to know that, that people magnify her and name things after her, like universities. Um, I don't know if you know, we have a local university in town that's named after Mary. Uh, actually, two. We have St. Mary's, and then that other one, I forget, uh, Notre Dame, right? Did you know that the name, Notre Dame, it, it's not named after a football team. Um, uh, the, the words Notre Dame, it's French, and it means, translated into English, Our Lady. And the lady they're speaking of is, is Mary. And at the end of the football games, they sing a song to her. It's, it's, a, it's a hymn. And, and this is the hymn, it's, it's the alma mater, and it, it says this. Notre Dame, our mother, tender, strong, and true. Not bad so far, here's where it goes in the ditch. <laughs> Proudly, is there anything here that would indicate that Mary's proud? Proudly, in the heavens gleams thy golden blue. Glory's mantle cloaks thee. Really? Golden is thy fame, and our hearts forever praise thee, Notre Dame. Our hearts forever love thee, Notre Dame. You might want to think about that next time you're tempted to sing that. Because God doesn't want us magnifying Mary. He wants us to magnify the son of Mary. Don't pray to Mary. Pray like Mary. Don't praise Mary. Praise like Mary. Don't magnify Mary. Magnify the son of Mary. D.A. Carson said this, if God had perceived our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If entertainment, an artist. If political stability, a politician. If health, a doctor. But he perceived our greatest need involved our sin. And so he sent us a savior. And Mary understood that her sin needed a savior. And her soul magnified the Lord because she realized that what was growing on the inside of her was the promised one who could save her from her sin. 
And so we magnify the Lord. He's a Savior. Secondly, He is mighty. Look at verse 48. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me. He's a mighty God. He's omnipotent. He has all power. God can do anything at any time he wants to do. He can crush anyone who opposes him. And he can accomplish anything that looks impossible to me is not impossible to God. As a matter of fact, again, if you let your eyes go right up the page, look at verse 37. This was a conversation that the angel Gabriel had with Mary before she praised him. And this angel wanted her to know what he wants us to know. Nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, he's mighty. And even though I can't see it with my eyes, even though I am a humble servant, 14-year-old, unwed, pregnant girl, God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants it, he is mighty. Do you believe that? Do you believe that whatever looks impossible to you, God can accomplish without burning a calorie? Here's another thing. Not only is he mighty, he is holy. Do you see it in verse 49? And holy is his name. The fact that God is holy sometimes gets lost on us in the Christmas story because we're, we're talking about the imminence of God, that, that He is with us. He comes and becomes one of us. And he, He's born as a, as a baby in a manger that you can hold in your arms. And, and even the nativities, we, we play with these things. And nothing wrong with any of that. That just is expressing our praise for the imminence of God. But in that, we cannot lose the transcendence of God that, that in many ways He is not like us at all. Namely in the fact that he, he has complete moral perfection. He is uncontaminated by sin. He is completely unpolluted. He is holy. His name is holy. We approach Him with reverence and awe and fear and worship and we bow down in His presence. Not only is He holy, He is merciful. Verse 50, and in his mercy, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. These two words together, coupled together in these two verses, he is holy and he is merciful, gives us the hope that we can actually approach him without being incinerated in his presence. So often we end up in one extreme or the other. The church can get so focused on His holiness that we become super religious and moral police and we have rules and you've got to be holy, you've got to be holy. And, and then somebody will react to that teaching like, oh, but He's so merciful, He's so kind, He's so gracious and you can do whatever you want to and, and you know, He'll forgive it. It's so hard to get the tension right. And we so often want to focus on His mercy rather than His holiness. It's a hard balance to keep. This week, one of the most influential theologians of uh, the 21st century 
went home to be with the Lord. His name was R.C. Sproul. Some of you have read some of his writings. If you haven't read some of his writings, you've probably been influenced some, by some men who have read some of his writings, namely me. Uh, his book on the holiness of God is one of the most spiritually formational things I've ever read, and you should read it too. He went home to be with the Lord. A couple of years ago, he was, um, he was at a conference. He was on a panel discussion. They were taking questions from the audience, and someone had a question about God's mercy related to His holiness. I want you to watch the way that R.C. Sproul answered that question. If God is slow to anger and patient, excuse me, since God is slow to anger, <laughs> we're always learning. Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was His wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting. Time out. <laughs> Didn't we just have that question a second ago? We did. Yeah, it's a little, I think a little, we little did. Nuance. That God's punishment for Adam was so severe. This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. After that, God had said, the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying, Thanatos, that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time, but the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. The question is, the question is, why wasn't it infinitely more severe? If we have any understanding of our sin and any understanding of who God is, that's the question, isn't it? You will never properly magnify the Lord until you know who God is in His holiness and in His mercy. And the fact that those that know His holiness without being incinerated in His holy presence are those who have been recipients of His mercy. Do you see who Mary tells us He is? His name is holy, and yet she tells us His mercy is for those who fear Him. How do you come to God? Trembling, humbled, worshiping, acknowledging your sin as a beggar would receive a gift from a king. Praise the Lord that He is a Savior, that He is mighty. Praise the Lord that He is holy. Praise the Lord that He is merciful and that we can know Him. He invites us as He invited Mary to be saved. Here's the second thing. 
magnify the Lord, not only for who he is, but for what he has done. Back up in verse 48, actually first uh, verse, verse 49, Mary says, he has done great things for me. I am talking to people right now in this room that know doctrinally everything I've said so far. As a matter of fact, you could probably explain it better than I could. As a matter of fact, you think you can explain it better than R.C. Sproul, but you can't. And so that's your problem, is you know things doctrinally that God has done, but you're just not quite sure he's done great things for you. Mary was a biblical theologian. She knew her Old Testament. As a matter of fact, as we've taught you to pray the Bible, everything in her prayer is connected to verses back in the Old Testament. She's praying the Old Testament and telling us all the great things that God has done doctrinally in the Old Testament. But she makes the leap and realizes God didn't just do those things for other people. God didn't just do those things for generations past or even generations future. She said, he's done great things for me. What turns doctrine into worship is when you understand the personal nature of this holy God. He wants to do great things for you. And he wants to do great things through you. We get so caught up in doing great things for God, we don't slow down long enough to praise Him for the great things He's done for us. And that's why we don't spend time in prayer. That's why we just rush on to ministry. That's why we go try to accomplish great things for God. Slow down. Acknowledge and praise God for the great things He's done for me. If I ask you to make a list right now, and I could, won't take time, but if I ask you to just make a list of, of, of great things that God has done for you, just list the five greatest things that God has done for you. All of our list would probably be very similar. I, I know what you would put. If I, number one, you'd say, I, you know, just I thank God, praise God for the great pastor and wonderful church that he's given me. I know that that would be the first thing on your list. I know that. So, so number two, the second thing would probably be um, your spouse. If you're married, it's like, I just thank, just praise God he gave me a, a spouse. How many of you got a spouse better than you deserved? Okay, your hand better be in the air right now if you want to have a spouse in the coming year. Okay, great. So I got one 23 years ago. Today, Andrea said yes to the lifelong adventure of being a Griffith. And so, you know, we stuck her in a trailer, dragged her around the country for about 15 years. And then I was like, we, we'll slow it down a little bit. Let's do something easier. Let's plant a church. Okay, so we're doing that. And so, so here we are, and we've been doing that for 23 years. Listen, and then you would go on to your children. I have three wonderful children. And then I got those other two, but, um, you know, you'd probably put those down there too. Um, now listen, this is what we would be tempted to put on our list. We would be tempted to put good things on our list. Do you notice what's missing from Mary's prayer? She didn't say, ah, oh, just thank the Lord. I'm so glad Joseph is still around. Um, so glad that I have food and some money and nice friends and wonderful parents. None of that's on the list, but that would be the stuff that we would put on the list. You know what she puts on the list? She puts the great things. The enemy of the great things are the good things. 
Don't be satisfied with less than the great things to praise God for. It's not the good things that fuels the praise. It's the great things. So what are the great things that she puts on her list? I want you to see them. Notice the first thing she says is, He has exalted the humble. Look at verse 51. 51 uh, says, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones And notice, exalted those of humble estate. That's who she was. She was a poor peasant girl. And she was a girl in those days, which was not a great assignment in life in those days. And so do you know what she says? God has done great things for me in spite of the fact that I'm not strong in spite of the fact that I'm not rich, in spite of the fact that I'm not a man. She got to the great things. Praise the Lord for the great things that He's done in overcoming my willful ignorance and my sinful disobedience. Praise the Lord that He's opened my eyes to see His magnificence. Praise the Lord that He's spoken to me by His Spirit about my need for a Savior. Praise the Lord that He's connected the dots from this Old Testament law-keeping, rule-keeping oriented religion to a gracious gift that He's given through Christ. Praise the Lord that He's granted me access to Himself through his son that came as a baby like me and endured temptations like me. Praise the Lord that he became like me in my humanity. Praise the Lord that he paid the price of my sin on the cross in my place. And praise the Lord that he overcame my sin and death as he came out of that tomb alive forever. And he lives forever interceding for me at the right hand of the Father. Those are the great things that he has done for the most humble people. But proud people and strong people and people that have a lot of money and a lot of talent have the hardest time understanding. They need something greater than they can do for themselves. But the humble people get it. And Mary was one of those, a great model of humility. Praise the Lord that He has filled the hungry. Look at verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away. Nothing wrong with the good things. He gives us good things. He does give us spouses. He does give us friends. He does give us financial sustenance. And so we can praise Him for the good things. But the world will try to offer you, offer you so much spiritual junk food to try to fill the hunger in your soul. And if you try to fill up on that, you just have to read the biographies and the stories of people that had the power, had the wealth, had the fame, had the beauty, had the leisure, and their, their life ended tragically because the hunger of their soul was never filled by God. Don't be deceived by the junk food. Let the Lord be the one that fills the, the, the hunger of your soul. And then verse 54, He has helped His servant. He has helped His servant Israel. Has Israel been in the news lately? What is the capital of Israel, by the way? Jerusalem. When did Israel become, when did Jerusalem become the capital? 5,000 years ago. And so the capital of the whole world one day will be 
Jerusalem. It probably shouldn't surprise us that our president would just kind of say, yeah, the, that's it. And then everybody's reacting to that. And do you know that little Israel and the little people that are Israel, this little remnant, the resistance, these, these people, appreciated that. These, these people, God's people, have always been the remnant. And in every moment that it seems like we, God's people, are about to be snuffed out, God just sends a little help. God just sustains. God keeps them alive. And do you know what she recognizes? That what God has done in her, this baby growing in her, is actually the fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abraham 1,500 years. For 1,500 years, the people of God had been waiting for God to fulfill His promise. Look at verse 55. In verse 54, it says, He's helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. He has spoken to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. We learned earlier in this year as we went through that series called Epic about the fact that the Bible is just simply the unfolding story of Jesus on every page. And the hero of every story is Jesus. Abraham's not the hero. Mary's not the hero. I'm sure they were good people. They were not magnificent. Only Jesus is magnificent. And so what we celebrate at these, this Advent season, the joy of our hearts, the eruption of praise, comes from knowing that God is the promise keeper. Can I ask you a question? Have you humbled him, yourself so that you can receive His mercy and not His wrath? Has He filled the hunger of your soul? Or are you living on spiritual junk food? Have you found Him to be the helper and are you willing to live as a remnant people, a minority people, and the other people don't get it, but you're looking for God to help you? And is there a joy in knowing that God has remembered His promise to all those who will fear Him, they will find Him to be a God of mercy? Your, your soul ought to erupt. Allow your soul to become the telescope that others can see how close and enormous and magnificent this God is. I, I, we've just got to sing about that. So I want you to stand up right now and I want your soul to magnify the Lord in the next few minutes. Let the joy erupt.